Guru Nation, welcome to episode 424 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this episode, we discuss five things that clinical research coordinators should know on day one of their job. So this is taken from our Site Owner Academy, where a lot of new site owners are hiring new coordinators who may be inexperienced. These are, in our opinion, five things that new study coordinators need to know. So hopefully you get some value out of it. If not, please send it to somebody who will. Also check out links in the show notes. We've got the Patreon channel, five bucks a month. We have digital marketing, teaches you how to expand your business opportunities online. We also have a monthly mastermind. It's all $5 a month. That's all it is. Like less less than a cup of uh, coffee from Starbucks, okay? Also in the show notes, we have CRA Academy, CRC Academy. You can also text me if you are a site in need of studies, 949-415-6256. We will send you studies and do a whole bunch of other stuff at a low, low monthly cost on a month-to-month contract, which can't be beat. You can't find a deal like this anywhere in in our industry. And with all that being said, hope you enjoy this episode, this very short episode, but important episode. Take care. Okay, miscellaneous things the new clinical research coordinator should know. So welcome to the Site Owner Academy this week's presentation. Uh, this is important because as a site owner, you're either the one that's going to be doing the coordinating, at least initially if you're a new site owner, or if you're not a new site owner, maybe you have a coordinator. These are still things you need to know because there's no way to run an effective business without ensuring that your staff is doing what they need to do. So, yes, you may not be coordinating yourself as a site owner. You may or may not be, but most of the time you will not be. But you do need to know what your coordinator needs to be doing. And this is why some of the best site owners are usually study coordinators, because they understand, like myself and Chris, we both started out as study coordinators, then we became site owners. So I always tell my coordinators, I never will ask you to do something that I haven't done before, which is actually true. So it it is helpful to have your own experience doing this, even if you've only done it for one study, okay? Because when you're, the coordinators you hire or work for you, they're going to be the ones that are taking orders from you, and they're going to know if you don't know what you're talking about, and they're going to, I mean, you know, Sometimes they might cut corners because they know that you're not sure what's going on. So you want to prevent this, okay? Like that that's the worst case scenario. And under the best case scenario, uh, the coordinator is going to do what, what they know they need to be doing uh, if they're an experienced coordinator, even if you don't have oversight. But it, it's important to know at least the basics about coordinating so that you know how to manage multiple uh, studies which is this slide that we're on now. So most coordinators manage multiple studies and are regularly expected to balance several priorities. Uh, A typical coordinator will have four studies running at any one time, although that number can vary. I mean, I know some coordinators have 20 studies that are not so complex and other coordinators that only have one uh, because they're extremely complex studies. 
Um, so it just depends. But four, av four average enrolling, average complexity studies is a good number for a coordinator. You can even go up to eight. Okay, but at some point, you know, after four, the coordinator is going to need some help. So if that's in the form of an assistant, a research assistant, or if that's in the form of another coordinator that's a backup for their study, um, or maybe you, the site director, are going to help them out in that case. Uh, so that's like, it's important to also understand the workload expected of a coordinator, because if you, especially if you have, you as the site owner have not done uh, coordinating yourself, it could be, you could be out of touch and not know what's a reasonable workload for a study coordinator. And I mean, we're going to get into Q&As at the end, but you know, there, there's a lot of uh, uh, variables there. So a good prioritizing. So a good coordinator can correctly identify which areas to focus on. And whenever in doubt, just keep in mind, patient safety is the top priority. It's not resolving a query. It's not sending out a lab on time. It's patient safety. So when the two, when patient safety clashes with anything else, patient safety should win. That should be the top priority. So um, now this does include sending labs out on time, ironically enough, because if you're not sending out the lab on time and then the you'll have delayed lab results and that could put the patient out of window and that could be a whole that could cause a whole cascade of issues so those are things that you want to avoid as well uh coordinators can ask the site director for guidance on what to focus on but again if you're the site director and you don't have any knowledge or working at least some basic working knowledge of this uh you're not really going to have good feedback and then they may just ask you for your advice once and then that's it. So in my opinion, it's really best to, if you can't do the coordinating yourself, it's best to just get your hands dirty somehow, get in the trenches with them and learn the process of coordinating. You don't have to do it full time, but you should be in the trenches, at least initially. Um, once you bring on once you, you promote your senior coordinator to site director or site manager, then you can, or lead coordinator maybe for all the coordinators, then you can kind of, you can delegate that to them. But initially when you're starting out, uh, that's not going to, you won't have that luxury. Okay, so there's kind of no um, way around getting your hands dirty a little bit early on in your site. Uh, studies with a high volume of patients, patient visits, or high enrolling studies can take up most of the coordinator's workday. So this is true. And this is, again, like prioritizing the workflow of the coordinator. I know many site owners who, have, who are so out of touch from, uh, you know, like so far removed from, from doing the coordinating work that they just expect unreasonable work from the coordinators. And they don't understand what the monitors are asking them to do. I mean, they only see what they're asking them to do, but on the other side, sponsors, CROs, CRAs, they're always requesting things of the coordinators, vendors, the patients are requesting things of them. So it's not just the site director that's asking the coordinator to do things. You're just one of many. Okay, but it's important for you to understand prioritization. Uh, sometimes studies that are closed will also need attention. So it's not just that 
just because a study is not enrolling, right, it doesn't mean there's no work to be done on that study. So that also takes coordinators time. And as a site director or a site owner, you may you may not prioritize those studies, obviously, because you're not generating revenue from them. But it's uh, it's still something that you need to account for when it comes to study coordinator workload. Uh, next slide, Chris. SUSARS. Let me know if we're on the SUSARS. So suspected, unexpected, serious, adverse reactions. So these are SAEs that the sponsor did not anticipate during protocol design. So sites will receive SUSAR notices throughout the length of the study, even if the events are occurring at different times. Uh, filing these SUSARs is extremely important, and on large studies, on, on very large studies, multinational, multiple protocols, you might be getting a lot of SUSARs. So this is just one example of work that coordinators need to do that may or may not occur on an enrolling study at your site. Okay, Maybe the study ended enrollment, but now all the SUSARs come piling in. So coordinators still have to spend a lot of their time doing this. Um, next slide, CS or NCS. These are, these are things that new clinical research coordinators need to know as well. So clinically significant, non-clinically significant. Now, only the PI or a qualified clinician can determine clinical significance. But it's, the coordinator needs to ensure that this is getting done. So it's not enough to just get the lab results signed by the PI, um, you know, but all the out-of-range values are not checked off as CS or NCS. So this is a coordinator's job. It's not just, let me check if the labs were signed. It's looking at every single out-of-range value and getting the PI to CS or NCS and initial and date next to it in a timely manner also. Like it shouldn't be a month later. It should be a few days within a few days of receiving the lab results. So just another thing that keeps coordinators busy. And you definitely, as a coordinator, you don't want this to pile up. Uh, you don't want these lab results to just pile up and then have the PI sign them like in, in batches because that's going to keep, that's, that's going to show um, a lack of PI oversight, especially if there's more than two or three days from when the labs were were received by the by the site from when the lab results were received by the site. So anyone making a CS or NCS determination should be listed on the delegation of authority log and trained on the protocol. Not only this, but if there is an NCS, you know, what does that mean now? So this means, is that an AE, which is adverse event? Is it part of medical history? Uh, because sponsors, you know, the CRA sponsors or even worse, regulators are going to look at that and say, okay, this is NCS. Well, what was done to the IP or how did the PI handle this situation? That unfortunately falls on the coordinator to make sure that these things, just like the job title says, are being coordinated appropriately. All right, so that's study coordinator's job. Study coordinator is not, nobody's asking the coordinator to make the CS. NCS determination themselves. No one's asking the study coordinator to uh, have a plan of action for if there's an AE as far as the treatment capabilities. 
Um, and uh, so, but we are asking the coordinators to coordinate the workflow at the site so that the PI, keep the PIs, keep the clinicians on top of things, okay? Additionally, sponsors may require that these clinicians are also listed on the 1572 and have financial disclosure forms in the site's regulatory binders. This, again, falls on the coordinator to ensure that it's taken care of. Uh, temperature excursions. Chris, uh, you want to handle this temperature excursion? Do you love temperature excursions? I do. Since when do I? Uh, no, I don't know. All right. Temperature excursions occur when study drug falls out of the allowed temperature. So, yeah, and that's, you know, blatantly straightforward. So you're given a, um, a range that the IP, investigator, invest, um, investigator product, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm sidetracked at the moment. Uh, the drug that's being uh, experimented upon um, has a range that the temperature needs to be kept at. Um, and it may be refrigerated, it may be frozen, it may be ambient, it could be any of these things, and you just need to make sure the drug's kept in that range. Uh, sites should immediately notify the CRA and sponsor for guidance on how to proceed. Most sponsors will simply ask that the medication be quarantined, so some will allow brief excursions or excursions that are not too far out of range. So, yes, um, this is just speculation on my behalf, but I, I think the range that is provided that the drug needs to be kept at the investigational product, um, that that range has a buffer to it. So they may be providing to the site a range of, say, between 50 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and the real range is 40 to 90 or 30 to 100 or whatever it might be. So um, usually, at least in my experience, when you call and say, hey, it was one degree off, they'll say you can go ahead and use it, but We'll get back to you just to make sure that's okay, or something to that effect. So I'm sure that there's some sort of, of buffer zone there. Um, anyhow, temperature excursions or deviations and should be reported appropriately. Yep, absolutely. Anything to add there, Dan? No, I think, uh, but, uh, you know, yes, because this is a coordinator's job, right? Like, nobody else is going to do this except the coordinator. And uh, this is just another example these are the most important things uh, in this slideshow that new clinical research coordinators should know. And from the perspective of a site director, things that you need to know that your coordinators need to know, if that, if that makes sense and it's not too confusing. And temperature excursion is something that's all, often overlooked, unfortunately. Uh, research design, okay. So understand the design requires extensive understanding of the techniques that are used to analyze data. Most research professionals are familiar with double-blinded, placebo-controlled studies. Other designs include parallel, crossover, single-blind, double-blind, multi-center, single-center, or open-label. If you don't know what those things are, um, get the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. But you should be familiar. Your coordinator and you should be familiar with these designs of protocols. These are simple. These are frequently used. These are how studies are designed. You want to make sure that you understand this. Very basic, but very important. And then the O and ALCOA. So documents that meet attributable, legible, contemporaneous, original, accurate, and complete. That is ALCOA-C. 
the O in Alcoa means that the information on source documents is not a duplicate. O stands for original. Okay, so if any information is written, wherever the wherever the source data first generates itself, that is the source. Whether it's on a sticky note, whether it's on a paper towel, that's the source. The coordinators, especially new ones, tend to think, okay, well, it's not clean. I like to have everything clean on my source documents. So they'll just transcribe, you know, from whatever the original source was to their source document. The problem with this is errors can be made. This is the most common way when it comes to source uh, source gathering that errors are made, and these are avoidable errors. And you don't want a regulator to find out that your source is not actually the original source, and and you're not using the original source. So that's a that's a very important one, I think, as well. The O in Alcoa. Hey, a quick nice. tangent. A quick tangent, Dan. A quick tangent. So. I've heard a number of CREs recently refer to Alcoa-C as Alcoac. And the first time I heard that, it was, uh, okay, should I know that? What is Alcoac? And I, after thinking about it for like 15, 20 seconds, like, oh, she's referring to Alcoa-C. Just some new terminology there, or way of pronouncing it, I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's have you heard that? No, but it makes sense, because for everyone before 2016, when this was, was uh, added, where this final C was added, it was just called Alcoa. Well, for everyone who came who came into the industry afterwards, there's no point for them to have a dash because, you know, they don't know it as Alcoa before the Alcoa C. So, yeah, it, it's not surprising that they call it Alcoa. So, hey, everybody, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you leave a review if you could be so kind, please. Uh, And also go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com if you're interested in learning more about who I am, who some of my guests are. Uh, You can have access to some of my YouTube videos. Uh, I do a lot of videos about clinical research. So go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com and you can also call or text me anytime, 949-415-6256. Also follow me on any social media platform. It's Dan Svera. And you can also email me if you'd like, dan at theclinicaltrialsguru.com. Thank you very much.